Good morning. Um, it is a great honor and privilege and um, a little bit of a fearful thing to come before the body of Christ with the Word of God, uh, with the responsibility to proclaim it to you. So I want you to know this morning that I, uh, as I should always, come before you with the Word of God. I, I come with some trepidation today, and, and always do so, but today a little more than normal, enough for me to mention it to you. Um, we're looking at a text today that is difficult. Not only is it difficult, I think, from a theological perspective, as we, as we look at this, not my will, but yours be done, comment. Um, but also, it, it's, it's difficult in that we see in this text the human nature of Christ in this text today, probably more so than maybe any other text of Scripture. So it makes it difficult to rap, grapple with, but it's also difficult in the sense that this is a monumental, historic moment in the redemption story. And so there's a lot of weight, I think, on the text as well. So I come this morning honestly confessing before you that I come with some trepidation to um, uh, deliver this text today. Um, Jamie Nettles is our uh, normal guy who preaches uh, every week being the pastor of teaching and preaching. And so uh, he usually takes the month of July, and what we do as elders is we give him the month of July to uh, dedicate his time and resources and energy to other uh, activities of ministry so that he can focus in on, on other things to include spending some time just praying through vision and such. And so uh, we have the opportunity when he's away in the month of July to preach and so I relish that opportunity to be before you. My name is Joey. I'm one of the elders. Um, and so we, we have this opportunity, and I'm thankful for it. Um, but I have to be honest about today's opportunity as well. Um, so we have this schedule that we produce like on an annual basis of what we're going to be preaching on and when and who's going to be preaching. And every year, early in the year, I pull that schedule out, and I mark off all the dates that, I'm, that I know I'm going to be preaching, that we've got planned, and what's the scheduled idea, what the text is for that week, or, or whatever. I just do that once a year, basically, so that I, I know, and I can just look at my phone, and know what's going on, and I have to track that schedule down. And So I'm preaching on the authority of Scripture, kind of the doctrine of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, sufficiency, clarity, all of that, um, uh, at one point on the schedule. And so in my mind, about two months ago, I thought I need to start refreshing myself on the doctrine of Scripture. So I started reading some books on the doctrine of Scripture, authority, sufficiency, clarity, those kinds of things. Um, about two months ago, I started doing that in preparation for today. I'm preaching that in September, however, because last week I was, I was sitting back there and, and Joel started preaching and he started preaching Mark chapter 14 and I'm going... Wait a minute, I thought we were preaching standalone sermons while Jamie was out, and I have authority of Scripture next week, so why is he preaching Mark? So I pulled the schedule out on my phone like I should have a long time ago, and I, I'm flipping through, and I was like, sure enough, I'm preaching authority of Scripture in September. Um, so not only do I have a little bit of trepidation because of the weight of this passage, the historical significance and the story of redemption, and the fact that this is one of the more complex 
uh, theological text where we see the humanity of Christ and all of those sorts of things, but I also have a little trepidation because I only had a week to prepare. <laughs> so, we're going to do the best that we can uh, with the text that the Lord has given us. And honestly, I'm thankful uh, that I spent some time in the last few months uh, just refreshing authority of Scripture. More importantly, I think I'm thankful that I spent some time refreshing sufficiency of Scripture because uh, it's made me kind of come to this text from a different perspective and some different thoughts. And so I, God probably had some intentional, um, intentional reasons for using my former head injury to remind, to make me forget what I was preaching and prepare a different way to bring me to this text from a completely different perspective, probably than I ever have. And so uh, what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be talking about Jesus and his human nature. Um, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's a complex thing to think about, but this text, I think, shows us his human nature more clearly than possibly maybe any other text of Scripture. And so we have to put that in front of us today. We're going to do that kind of in, in three sections. I said three sections in the first service, and it ended up being one section, and I flew through the second section, and Joel has to do the third next week. Actually, Joel's already planning to do the third next week, but you know it's fun to say it that way. Um, so we're going to do it in three sections. Here they are in, in summary. Uh, the first one is going to be human nature, spiritually alert, and submitted to the will of God. The second thing I hope we have time to see is human nature spiritually asleep and unaware of the will of God. And what Joel's going to have to deal with next week in some way, form, or fashion is the human nature spiritually deceived and rebellious to the will of God. Human nature spiritually alert, human nature spiritually asleep, human nature spiritually deceived, and the impact that that has on our understanding of the will of God. And so we're going to take up the person of Jesus Christ this morning to help us understand what a spiritually alert human nature looks like and how spiritual alertness in our human nature leads us to a submissive approach to the will of God. And so to start all of that, I need, I need to remind you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, of who Jesus was in his incarnation, right? In Philippians, um, Paul tells us that he, that is Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or emptied himself, NASB says, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So we have this concept that Jesus, when he put on flesh in his incarnation, he in some way emptied himself or made himself nothing, the scripture says, and was made in the likeness of man. So what does it mean for him to empty himself or be made nothing? In, in some respect, and I want you to grasp this concept, in some respect, it means that he, the man, Jesus, purposefully limited the use of his divine attributes by choice. He purposefully limited the use of his divine attributes by choice. It, it means that, that Jesus was fully God, yes, 
but he may have chosen not to use his divine attributes of foreknowledge. He may have existed in human flesh and experienced life day by day as a human, fully man. He didn't necessarily always know what was coming around the corner, so to speak. He limited himself by choice, emptied himself of the glory of his eternal nature, right? And in some ways, by choice, not because he was forced to, not because he couldn't. We see that he was fully man. I mean, he did walk on water, right? He did make blind people see. He exercised his divine nature. But he also limited the usefulness of his divine nature by his own choice. For example, I think he did in this text uh, limit the use of his godly nature and divine foreknowledge. And I think, I I hope at least that you'll see how in this text and in the text surrounding it, Jesus is a man. And He's able to discern the will of God in the everyday actions of His life and the world based not, on, not necessarily on His godly nature and divine foreknowledge, but based on His intimate knowledge of Scripture. His human nature's intimate knowledge of Scripture led Him to discern the will of God in what was going on around him. And so he, he emptied himself in ways of limiting by choice his use of divine attributes. And, and he was made into the likeness of man, Paul says in Philippians. And so we have to understand what this means as well. And I think that that means like the, other, the flip side of that coin is that he purposefully experienced and discerned daily life with his human attributes, by choice. That he got hungry, needed food. That he was sleepy and needed rest. That at times, if you remember, he was pressed in by the crowd and he needed some solitude. So he went off alone. That he felt the needs of the human flesh. Yes, In Hebrews 4, we're reminded that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with us because he experienced life as we experience it. He even experienced temptation in the desert, if you recall. And so, he purposefully experienced and discerned life, daily life, through his human attributes by choice. For example, he understood the world around him through his human nature's biblical knowledge. Listen to that. His human nature's biblical knowledge that resulted from his intimacy with the Scriptures. Too many times I think we let ourselves off the hook and say, well, Jesus was able to do that because he was God, right? He was able to respond that way because he was God. He was able to know that because he was God. I think sometimes we have to come to the person, the man Jesus, and understand that he was able to discern what God was doing around him, not only because he had a divine nature, but because his human nature was fully immersed in the Holy Scriptures. And he saw life through the filter of the Word of God. I'm going to try to lay that out for you today. And so I want to describe to you a little bit, what, is it, what does it mean to be spiritually alert? So, 
First, it does not mean, it does not mean some spiritual, esoteric awareness of another dimension, right? That's not spiritual alertness. You know, too many people today go, uh, you know, and, and try to understand the spiritual realm, you know, with something inside of them. We think that spiritual people are those that are tapped into something inside of them that's deep. That's not spiritual alertness. That may be the third point. That may be spiritually deceived and in rebellion to the Word of God. But it's not something like that. It's not tapping into something deep inside of yourself to be in sync with the spirit realm or anything like that and reading palms and cards and all that stuff. That's not spirituality. Spiritual alertness is tapping into something outside of you, not inside of you. Spiritual alertness is tapping into the Word of God, understanding the wisdom that is found throughout the Word of God, submitting yourself to the truths of the Word of God so that He saturates your heart and mind with a spiritual framework of biblical wisdom by which we discern the will of God in the daily activities around us. It's understanding the Word and seeing the world through the filter of the Word. That's being spiritually alert. And so I think we're going to see that Jesus was spiritually alert by seeing the world through the Word. I said in the first service I was going to try to race through some of this uh, background work, and I didn't. I only ended up preaching only really one point. So we'll see how this goes in this time. How was Jesus spiritually alert? I want to make the claim this morning, and I want you to follow me, that he was able to understand what was going around him and even predict some things that were about to happen, not necessarily by his godly nature exercising divine foreknowledge, but rather by his human nature applying biblical knowledge resulting from his intimacy with Scripture. And so he's already done this in the book of Mark. To give you a little bit of review, if you remember uh, in Mark chapter 11, we had the triumphal entry when they gathered around him on the streets with the palm branches and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, and this is the coronation of a king, right? They're treating him like a king. And all the disciples are like, yes, the time is near. He is a, the world's about to know that he is the king. And shortly after that, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples telling them he's about to die. Disciples are really confused. They're like, Jesus, they just treated you like a king, man. The time is now, right? We're going to overthrow Rome now, right? You're the king. The world's going to know. And he's like, I am about to be killed. I am about to die. And they're confused by this. Why is it that Jesus thought that them crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, why is it that based on that he thought he was about to die? Is it because of his godly nature and divine foreknowledge? I propose to you that not necessarily, not necessarily by divine foreknowledge, but rather even in his human nature, through an understanding of the Scriptures, he was able to discern the will of God. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 26 and 7. This is the psalm that they were singing. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has given us light. Sounds good so far, right? Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the altar. You see, Jesus in His human nature was thoroughly intimate with the Scriptures and He knew that the Hosanna call meant that it was time that the Messiah would be bound to the cross. He knew that the Hosanna call meant that it was time for Him to be bound to the horns of the altar. As a matter of fact, this same psalm, if we back up a few verses in it to verse 22, Jesus knew what the Hosanna call meant. It meant that the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, we take the last piece of that and we extrapolate it out and we say that in the morning as we drink our coffee. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We forget the fact that it's in the context of the blessed Hosanna, where it's the reminder that our Christ is about to endure a Roman crucifixion, and our Christ is about to be the cornerstone rejected by His people, and our Christ is able to say at the thought of this rejection, at the thought of this sacrifice, at the thought of a Roman crucifixion, He is able to say, no matter what this brings... This is in accordance with the will of God because I see it declared in His Word. Therefore, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, how we've ruined that verse. I hope and pray that you can wake up each morning and say, because you understand what God is doing around you, you're able to discern the will of God around you. And no matter the difficulty or the joy in your life from day to day, you're able to see God at work and say, no matter what, God, this is the day. These are the circumstances that you have brought upon me, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is what Jesus is able to discern because of the triumphal entry. And so he knows that the time is now, the hour has come, and he starts telling his disciples, I'm about to die. Not based purely or necessarily on his godly nature, exercising divine knowledge, but his human nature, with biblical knowledge and understanding of, with intimacy in the Scriptures. And then last week, you remember, he predicted he was at the Lord's Supper, and understanding that it, the time, the hour is coming, he's taking that that festival meal, right? The Passover meal, and he's re-describing it to them, and he's telling them all the things that, that have been captured in this meal that are about the Messiah, and he wraps it up, and he wraps it up in these two elements. You remember from last week, the bread and the wine, that final cup, that one cup reflects the, the body and the blood of Jesus, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood, and in the midst of all of that, he says, one of you will betray me. This feels like some divine foreknowledge, right? He understands that something's about to happen, and he knows that it's one of them. But I want you to know that you can look people in the face sometimes and see what they're thinking, can't you? Especially your children. You know, children, they know when you're lying, just so you know. Sometimes they act like they don't know, but they know. 
You can see in people's face at work. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're up to. You can discern that through facial expressions. So in Jesus' human nature, sitting at the Passover meal, surely he too is able to look Judas in the eye, see the shame and guilt that's stirring up inside of him, and know that he's up to something. But was it merely facial expression? I don't think so. If we look at Psalm 41, Psalm 41, verses 7 through 9, Jesus was thoroughly familiar with this text. It says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. This was the scheming, right? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus, the man, thoroughly familiar and intimate with the Scriptures, understood that he, his death was about to come. He understood that they were whispering about him in the background. They were, they were planning against him. They were hoping the worst for him. They were saw death coming for him and knew that if he died, he would not rise, that they would finally had taken care of him and he wouldn't rise to be the king, right? And so he knows all of that, but he also knows that that same text that says that about the Messiah says that I will be betrayed by my closest friend, the one who dips with me, he said during the Passover meal, who ate my bread. You see, it's not necessarily by his divine nature that he's able to discern these things, but it is even in his human nature, in his intimate familiar uh, with the Scriptures, and his, his biblical knowledge and biblical wisdom that allows him to understand what is going on around him. And so finally we get to today's text. Verse 27 of today's text. After they've sang their hymn, they've had the meal, and they've sang their hymn, and they're on their way to the garden. And while they're on the way to the garden, Jesus just said, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all whispering, right? They're saying, surely not I. I'm not going to be the one to betray him. And, and who is it? Who do you think it is? You think it's going to be Matthew? You think it's going to be Peter? Who's it going to, who's it going to be? That's what they're doing, you know. And Jesus finally just says, yeah, I'll stop. Stop. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Divine foreknowledge? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I propose to you that it was not necessarily his divine foreknowledge or his godly nature, but rather even only his human nature was able to apply biblical knowledge resulting from his intimacy with Scripture to understand that Zechariah chapter 13 said this very thing. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little one. See, Jesus was thoroughly familiar. He knew that it was time for him to be bound to the altar. He knew that he would be betrayed. And he also knew that when the shepherd was stricken, the, the sheep would fall away. And so he says, y'all stop trying to figure out who it is. You're all going to fall away. 
for it is written. He's not predicting the future based on his divine foreknowledge alone. He's not discerning the will of God because merely because he is God. He's discerning the will of God around him because he knows the word. And so he takes Peter, James, and John with him in verse 33. I'll back up to 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So, we see the humanity of Jesus in this text. We see that He is distressed, troubled, Sorrowful, NASB says, deeply grieved. How can this be? Why is it that Jesus would have these emotions? I posit to you a few things. I've already said that he knew that his death was near. And just the fact that he lived in a Roman culture he knew what Roman execution looked like. So I I just posit to you that in his human nature, think about it for a moment, just being a man, living in that culture, and knowing that he is about to be executed by those who are rallying against him to prevent him from overthrowing Rome, he knows it's going to be a Roman execution, and he knows what Roman execution looks like, and so in his human nature... He had to be distressed over that. Think about this for a moment too, because I won't have time to get to it later, because I ran out of time in the first service. I assume I'll do it again. Um, Think about this. Peter has just said, if you die, I'll die with you. But Peter goes to sleep, so surely he's not thinking he's really going to die. You don't go to sleep when you think your life's about to die. You kind of stay up all night worried about that one. But Jesus is distressed at the thought of a Roman crucifix. Surely. But I posit not only might he have been distressed over the idea of just a man living in the first century world in, a, in the Greco-Roman society knowing that his own crucifixion is probably pending I think he was distressed and troubled for a few other reasons. One, because he was intimately familiar with Isaiah chapter 53. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And he's just told the disciples that's what's about to happen, right? And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. So he's just told them that, that you're all going to go astray, you're all going to fall away, and that, because of his intimate knowledge of the Scriptures, brings to his human mind Isaiah 53, where he knows that they're all going to fall astray, and what that means in them all going astray, that also means that the Lord is about to lay on me the iniquity of them all. 
And so suddenly, the idea and the concept of a Roman crucifixion just kind of pales in comparison, though it is distressful. It pales in comparison to the concept of the godly nature of the God-man that he is about to take on sin. And so he becomes distressed and troubled over the idea of being guilty of the sin of all those who will believe in him. And he considers himself as a man fearful before a holy God. As he considers the fault of taking on sin. Oh, how I wish we were as distressed and troubled over sin as our Lord was in this garden. But I will even posit to you more so than that, that not only was it the idea that He might take on sin and become the iniquity of us all that caused distress, but in addition to that, also there in Isaiah, the previous verse in verse 5, it says, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. (laughs) And with His stripes, we are healed. You see, He knew that in taking on the sin, in taking on the iniquity of us all, He knew just based on His human biblical understanding of the will of God occurring around him, he knew that the Messiah, in taking on iniquity, would also take on the wounds, the the crushing, the chastisement due to sinners. He knew that in this moment he would be made sinful, but also that he would receive in his flesh the due penalty of sin that is the wrath of God. And the thought of a Roman crucifix paled in comparison to the idea of receiving wrath. The idea of being made an object of God's wrath distressed and troubled Him. Oh, how I wish we would be distressed and troubled over the concept of Ephesians 2 where we we learned that we were all once objects of God's wrath. That is, apart from God making us alive in Christ Jesus, we are still objects of that wrath. Oh, how I long for us to be distressed and troubled under the weight of that wrath as Christ was. But I posit one more thing to you. Not only was it the Roman crucifix or the thought of taking on sin or receiving wrath. But Jesus was thoroughly familiar with Psalm 22. And He knew that a part of receiving the wrath of God as He contemplated the fact that He would take on iniquities and in the midst of that take on chastisement, He knew that a part of the wrath of God which He was to receive was the separation from the Father, separation from God. And so, in his mind, he knew that he would have to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of Michael Romney. 
And so in this moment in the garden, he began to contemplate the truths of his humanity. The truths of taking on sin. The truths of taking on wrath. The truths of being separated from his Father. Knowing that that beautiful triune unity which he had experienced from all eternity past and during his days on earth and his incarnation and taking on the form of man, he had striven so diligently to keep the law and the prophets, to perfectly hold up the law and the prophets, to perfectly love the Word, to perfectly love the Father, to perfectly love his neighbor. He knew that the end of this meant that to be offered as a sacrifice for sin, to be that sin offering, the Lamb had to take on the sin of the world. The Lamb had to receive the punishment of sin. And the Lamb had to be separated from the Father. And this idea of separation from the Father deeply grieved the Son. Made Him sorrowful unto death. And so, he cries out in verse 35. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Oh, the humanity. And he said, Abba, Father, it's interesting that he captures the word Abba, Father. Right? This is that Greek word that, that Paul uses later in Galatians that says to us that we too will be brought into the family of God, adopted as sons, and we'll be able to cry out, Abba, Father. It's that childish Greek word. And I say childish, not childlike. It is a childish Greek word for the Father. It, it, it's not even really daddy. It's almost dada. Right? It, it, this is Jesus and Mark's trying to capture the, the way he approached the Father in this garden. He's trying to get us to understand the intimacy that he felt with the Father and the deep groaning of his spirit where he just cries out, as you might to your own dad, Daddy, please. He didn't come and say, Father, I know that thou art capable. No. Daddy, please. Feeling the full weight of sin to come, wrath to come, separation to come. He cries out, Daddy, please. All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, spiritual alertness allowed Jesus to understand the will of God through a biblical filter and see what was playing out before his eyes. Not necessarily based on his godly nature and divine foreknowledge, but his human nature. Exercising biblical wisdom that he gained because of his intimacy with the Scriptures. He was able to see what was playing out before him and recognize that this was the will of God for the Redeemer. This was the will of God for the Lamb of God. It's clearly laid out in the Old Testament in his mind. The clarity of Scripture, which I'd spent two months thinking about. 
It was clearly laid out for him in the Old Testament, and he's able to discern what's going on because he sees it in Scripture. So you see how spiritual alertness then enables us even to discern the will of God as it happens around us. And this discernment of the will of God as it's happening around us uh, creates in us a rejoicing and a joy at the circumstances, no matter what those circumstances are. And what the, whatever God happens to be doing, we're able to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And so in this moment, though, he, though he's contemplating Roman crucifixion, though he's contemplating taking on sin, though he's contemplating the wrath of God, though he's contemplating separation, he's able, because of his discernment of the will of God, to experience joy, and that joy produces in him submission, where he says, not my will, yours be done, for this is the day you have made. I'm going to rejoice. Be glad in this day. Be glad in your will. For it is good, acceptable, and perfect. So it's not necessarily his godly nature exercising divine foreknowledge, but his human nature applying biblical knowledge resulting from his intimacy with the Scriptures. How intimate are you with the Scriptures? Are you sometimes unaware of what's going on around you? Are there days where you just can't figure out what God is doing or don't even care? If I had time, I would preach to you the second point, which is human nature, spiritually asleep and unaware of the will of God. I can't dive into it and show you all of the different things that I believe are clear in this text, but I can say at least a few things about it. Peter early on denies the truth of Scripture because he's so unaware of what's going on. Jesus quotes Scripture and says, hey, you're all going to fall away, and Jesus says, not me. I don't care what the Scripture says. He didn't say, I don't care what the Scripture says, but he's basically saying, I don't care what the Scripture says, not me. Jesus basically says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, even if you're going to die, I will die with you. But if he really believed that Jesus was about to die, he might not have said that. It's clear that he doesn't really believe that Jesus is going to die because in contemplating Jesus' death, Jesus is deeply grieved while Peter is asleep. You don't sleep when you're contemplating the potential of your own death. He was physically asleep, along with James and John, which is an, a great view of our spiritual slumber, our spiritual sleep. He calls them to be alert. He says it five times in Matthew 13, which, by the way, comes right before Matthew 14, right? And so in Matthew 13, five different times, is he talking about the coming of Christ? You know, the second coming and all the signs of the time and all these things and the, the temple being destroyed. He's talking about those things five different times. He tells them, be alert. Same word means be awake, by the way. Be alert, be alert, be alert. He ends that section with this beautiful parable of the master who might come home, right? And you want to be alert because you don't want the master to come home and find you sleeping, he says. And here he is in the garden, walks away a little further. He's praying under this deep grief, and he comes back as the master and finds them sleeping. Not alert. 
Are you spiritually sleeping, not aware of what is going on around you, not aware of the will of God, not able to discern the happenings of your daily life because you're not looking at life through the filter of Scripture? Because we're not intimate enough with it. I'm so confused about how Peter, James, and John could possibly have gone to sleep at this moment. Of course, we always like to say, if it were me, right? If it were me. Uh, I like to think I wouldn't have acted the way Peter, James, and John did here because if you remember, there was a time a little bit earlier in the book of Mark where the disciples were all together and then Jesus was going to go a little further and he brought Peter, James, and John along with him. Told the other disciples, y'all stay here. Peter, James, and John, y'all come on. We're going to go on up the mountain. And they reach the top of the mountain. And at the top of that mountain, they see Jesus in full glory transfigured before their eyes and Elijah and Moses are with them and before it's over, they're wanting to build altars and everything. They're just pumped. So if I was in the garden, right, and I had just experienced that as Peter, James, and John, Jesus says, hey, y'all disciples, y'all stay here. Peter, James, John, y'all come on. We're going to go a little further. I'd be like, we're going to see it again. They fall asleep. Why? Because they didn't realize the historic moment in the story of redemption that they themselves were a part of. Why didn't they realize it? Because they weren't filtering all of this daily activity through the filter of Scripture as Jesus had. In their human natures, they had grown apathetic to some extent. What's interesting is later Peter writes for us, 1 Peter chapter 1. Of course, it's certainly after Pentecost, right? He gets it now. But he writes for us, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, right? So he's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about the psalmist. He's talking about Zechariah. He's talking about these these prophets who wrote all these things. They searched diligently, right? They inquired carefully. They wanted to understand what they themselves were even writing, right? They were inquiring, Peter says, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, right? Who is it that we're writing about, the prophets were thinking? Who is it that we're writing about, the psalmists were thinking? When will these things happen, they were thinking, and they longed to understand them. And, and Peter even says, later in the same text, right, he says, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories, these things that have now been announced to you, these things they long to understand. And he even says, these things to which angels longed to look. So even the angels, Peter says, they, they longed to just catch a glimpse of this redemption story. They just longed to catch a glimpse of who this Christ was. They longed to just catch a glimpse of the activities of redemption. And Peter is saying they longed to know it, and now it's being announced clearly to you, right? You can understand it, unlike those who wrote it. And I'm thinking the whole time as I read this text, and yeah, Peter, while it was happening, you were asleep. Apathetic to what God was doing. Disengaged from the Word of God, so much so that you didn't understand what was happening before your very eyes. Are you so disengaged from the Word of God? Are you so biblically illiterate that you don't understand day-to-day life under biblical wisdom? Have we fallen asleep spiritually? 
I think apathy may be the single most pervasive problem among Christians today. I have a whole section I want to preach about apathy, but I am way out of time. But I need you to ask yourself, have you grown apathetic? Have you fallen asleep? Have you neglected the Word? Do you have a hard time understanding the will of God? We ask that question all the time, right? What's the will of God for my life? Here it is. You want to know what God's will is for your life? His will is for you to know Him through His Word. Know Him. Love Him. Desperately seek Him. By knowing His Word. And I promise you, I promise you, if you will desperately seek Him in His Word, God will formulate in you a, a, a habitual framework of biblical wisdom by which you're able to navigate all of life. And so, I call you to avoid the spiritual slumber and apathy. And to do so, I just ask you to do what Jesus did in His human nature. That is, know and love the Scriptures and thereby develop a habitual framework of biblical wisdom through which all of life is understood, the will of God is discerned, joy is found, and submission is so the will of God is established. And I fear that if you do not do this, you may otherwise find yourself in next week's text. Which I don't know what Joel will title, but I have titled it Human Nature. Spiritually Deceived and Rebellious to the Will of God. Father, Father,